And we are live. Well, welcome everybody. So since you last seen us, I think it's now a month into the war that we predicted wouldn't happen, but so much actually happening right now on so many levels. And if we thought that getting Russia disconnected from the SWIFT system and everything related to our financial might as the West, we were sorely mistaken. A lot of interesting things are happening. Fabian, kick us off a couple of initial thoughts before we dive into the many, many juicy bits that are to be unpacked here. Yeah, well, thank you guys. Um, well, we're facing um, I would what I would call almost economic arm wrestling or economic play of chicken. Um, the, uh, the I, I mean, we could we could almost argue that we're seeing somewhat of a new <laughs> economic order emerging out of this. Um, I mean, um, at the end of the day, you're seeing the U.S., the EU, Japan, and South Korea, which have uh, sanctioned Russia, um, pretty much versus the rest. And there is a big surprise on the side of the West that big players like India are not pulling along. Um, so, I mean, you know, let, let's face the fact that we are in in quite a in quite a big dilemma and we're facing an energy war that, um, well, many people actually had prophesied and many people actually had warned off. I mean, um, you know, I mean, I, I just remember that Donald Trump saying energy independence is so important for, for American security and, and, and even people warning the uh, Germans about their somewhat idealistic energy policy and their dependency on Russia, that it is going to be a threat to security and it's all playing out in front of us now. So what are we, what are we facing now? I think the biggest, um, the biggest topic of the day or this, this, these time period, right. Now is the fact that um, Vladimir Putin somewhat made clear that he wants Russian gas now paid in rubles. Now, this is something that is a developing story. So um, how it's all going to play out is still open. But I don't know, Christian, what do you think? Is he is he is he playing a tug of war here? Is he is this is this uh, another one of his poker moves or is he serious? Well, so so we are touching on a couple of really interesting bits. So um, f first of all, I mean, I cannot highlight to viewers from Europe and outside the old Vietnam War song and the whole world is watching, but not in terms of who oh, the whole world is watching, but in terms of they're watching and they're sitting on the fence. And even erstwhile, not so long ago, staunch allies of the United States, India. I mean, India you um, seem to be the big, um, sh uh, knight in shining armor riding with a billion people against the other billion people enemy and now India is like sitting on the fence and uh, a lot of other countries pretty much the whole world minus the the western world Japan and South Korea and this whole ruble thing why is it why is it so interesting so obviously um We've, we've, we've grown up in, in this order. So a couple of things have shaped the Western world pretty much since, you know, the, the West integ uh, integration of West Germany into NATO and the, um, the new institutions such as the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, all kind of cemented with the Bretton Woods Agreement where the United States left the gold standard or what more. Well, it wasn't really a gold standard anymore anyways. Probably the real gold standard had been abandoned in 1914 for all warring powers to, to finance the, the first world war, be that as it may. This is this is a, a sea change. And for me, the interesting thing, I mean, you, you asked Fabian, my long one, wait, has Putin, the big chess player, actually thought of this? And a lot of the stuff that is happening in Russia right now hints to me that, well, I, I still doubt whether the whole attacking Ukraine was the great strategic move. But from an operational perspective, certainly this has been gamed out in a lot of ways. You do this. Oh, I'm going to do this. And there, there, there's like one banal example. So within days of McDonald's withdrawing its Russian operation, there was a new Russian franchise called Uncle Vanya popping up with very similar signs. And that seemed to have been like very quick thinking on somebody's part or somewhat uh, gamed out. 
And I mean, there were thinkers that for a long time have been warning about against de-dollarizations. Or a lot of people who, who were thinking, how can the United States and to a degree Western Europe afford all these welfare states without rising? I mean, obviously in Europe, taxes are quite high and the United States taxes are quite high, but they should be even higher if we actually afforded everything that we are affording, you know, like sending most of the population into some sort of big vacation for two years during the COVID months, invite becoming a humanitarian superpower like Germany, inviting two million people of questionable economic value in. And how did we do that? And, and you know, a, a lot of the recipe were, well, we held all, well, the dollar as the reserve uh, currency for the United States and, and nobody paying too much attention to the gold standard. And now suddenly, um, I mean, we have to see what happened to the, to the um, ruble versus the dollar and to the euro. It tanked. And even brilliant analysts like Victor Davis Hansen were saying, ha-ha, now we've actually seen how powerful the West can be if it wants, wants to be. And now, actually, the ruble is rebounding um, with, the whole, um, and, uh, with the whole move. To, or even the discussion being floated. Well, there are actually two things being floated oil and gas being paid in ruble, which the Germans don't want and they're rejecting, and the ruble de facto going to some sort of gold standard. It's being pegged mm -hmm. to the gold price. And that, that is big. And um, sort of like there was this uh, quirky um, pundit called Peter Schiff, who always been preaching, the, singing the high praise of gold. And it's actually happening for the first time. And we've been um, always warned about the Russian currency reserves, Russian gold and Chinese gold, and nobody quite knows how much gold they have. Nobody for that matter knows how much gold there still is in Fort Knox, but that's, that's a different debate. And, and so far beyond, yes, I think um, a lot of that architecture we built in Europe and beyond as a house of cards, and Putin has pulled the first card, and we are seeing what's going to be the next move. I mean, the Germans are like, no, no, we're not paying it in ruble. And then the Kremlin said, okay, fine, we, we will find a way, you'll pay it to our central bank and the central bank is gonna convert it into to ruble, right. big whoop. Um, but I mean, a lot of things are happening and the most under-discussed move is really um, the, the change to the gold standard. So probably just like some thoughts from your side, I've been sort of uh, rambling now for almost three minutes in a row. You talking to me or, or uh, both Fabian? of you? Both of you. Go ahead, Fabian. Okay. Well, I was just going to say, um, I think, I think this, this, this ruble thing, of course, is, is in my opinion, a public stunt um, on the side of Putin to show his own population that they are doing something about the massive um, sanctioning that is taking place. So this is a signal to their own public. Uh, look, we're doing something to save our currency. On the other hand, you have to remember this is a this is an issue of of mutual dependency. The Russians, um, the the funding or any of the profit that the Russian government makes, fifty percent of that comes out of sale of the sale of gas. Um, on the German side, the Germans buy fifty five percent of Russian gas. So again, this is mutual dependency. So you know the fact that at first they're both playing, um, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're arm wrestling here, but in the end they're, they're cuddling up again. It's just mutual dependency. I think this is, this is, a, this is a, just a game of, of, of tug of war to show the public that there is some kind of an action taking place. The thing where it comes, becomes a little more pathetic is when a German energy and economics minister Habeck today said, well, why don't um, I, I encourage everyone to save as much energy as possible, turn your lights off to, to help the Ukraine and help Germany. I mean, that's look, if, if the government gives you any advice, you know how well that goes. Um, but when it comes to seriousness of this, again, this is a, a shifting of of um, this is this is big. I mean, this is you mentioned names like Bretton Woods and the gold standard. This is just as big. And. Um, an American historian, Alfred McCoy, warned of this, and he warned of of, of the uh, the dropping of the dollar as the reserve currency. Um, um, I think he he dated it to 2030. Um, but uh, the, so so we we know there are some serious implications. 
but um, yeah, I, before I you know uh, give the word to Todd, I just want to say there's a mixture of of um, serious reaction on, on on the part of the West, and then sort of ambiguous and um, a big back and forth where you can't tell where the West is really going to go on this. So um, that's still in the open. Oh, well, I would say that, um, you know, all of this I've said before is a, these are symptoms of the disease, which is the regime in the White House. And until that is removed, nothing is going to change. And yes, I think this has been a long-term plan. I wrote about it in a book 10 years ago uh, when, I, when I was still a bond trader on the street. You know, there's an old saying on Wall Street, interest rates are low until they're not. And, you know, at some point, uh, this happens very quickly and it's happening right now very quickly because at some point the bond market will just completely lose faith in the ability or the will of the United States to repay its debt. So that being said, you have, you've seen Russia and China move slowly over the last day towards this eventuality. Uh, they built their gold reserves. Russia really has no debt. They are actually pretty good stewards of their finances. And don't forget, a devalued ruble actually helps Putin because he pays all his bills domestically in rubles. So if he can get twice as many rubles for the gold or for the oil, right. that's not a bad thing in his mind. So um, there's always another side to this. I do believe that it's probably too early for this to completely take place because at the end of the day, it's Russia and China who are managing your money and they have a bad habit of stealing things and you know turning off money if it's a crypto or or whatever. So I don't think the world will fully embrace this new uh, Chicom currency, for lack of a better word. But I do believe that uh, we are moving towards uh, definitely a uni or a bipolar world as far as economics are concerned. I, th I think th this is a, it's a, a good point. I mean, when I said uh, the thing about the gold reserves, nobody knows how mm -hmm. many gold reserves China and Russia have. I mean, that can go either way. There are some yeah. who think they are so strategically astute that they've got tons more gold than, than they actually have actually accounted for. It could go the other way around. Nobody actually knows if China isn't built as much on domestic and foreign mm -hmm. debt as the United States, if not more. So, so I mean, let, let me jump in real quick. A, a good indication yeah. of how much gold they have is probably in Russia, particularly, is how well the tanks were preserved in storage where all, everything was stolen and they can only produce 10% of the tanks that they thought they had. So when they're pulling them out of dry storage for Ukraine. So that's just one point as to how yeah. much gold they actually have. So no, I think, I think, a lot's probably I been think, stolen. <laughs> yeah, I think this is an excellent argument. I mean, um, again, I, I, I do think we see a sea change and we see sort of dollar, um, let's call it supremacy being challenged, at least mm -hmm. verbally in a way that hasn't been done before probably a couple of bits about Europe. I mean, obviously, the propaganda war is still um, going on. So here, my favorite bit, uh, the Metro it talks about the crime of the centuries. I mean, showing Ukraine, I'm like, well, I can think of a couple more crimes <laughs> in, in recent histories. But, but be that as it may, there are, and in terms of there are a couple of other things happening vis-a-vis um, -vis Russia. So obviously the rampant anti-Russian sentiment, this is just, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to believe. And even um, what, what's happening to Russian private individuals, whatever you may think about them, their yachts getting impounded, a oligarchs and um, villa in London being sort of raided and, and looted by people to the great applause of London's woke, if not outright woke Islamist mayor Siddiqui Khan, gets sort of looted um, to great applause of the press. And obviously, in the, the move needs to be seen in this uh, contest, uh, in, in this context, that um, sort of we've got this new standard applied to Russians. So yesterday it was not all Muslims. Now it's really all Russians. At the same time, we quickly showed our financial muscles, but they've shown well that game can be um, can be played either way. And as Fabian has said, for the first time, the word rationing vis-a-vis -vis gas comes back. And probably to use a bit of an analogy, 
Germany and Russia at the moment are a bit like two boxers who are both shackled at the wrist. So they need our gas money, but we need their gas. And so <laughs> retaliation can only be so bad in that context. Um, and, 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 but, and, and Christian, yeah. can, I, can I quickly yeah. come in there? I think, I think what Todd said about the, from the American perspective about sort of the, the, the roots of the problem sitting in the White House, from a German perspective, we have to say that 16 years of Merkel errors are crashing down on our heads and they're hitting us badly. They're hitting us like, you know, steel concrete and um, it's, it's showing. I mean, think about this. Merkel was the one who got rid of um, um, the the uh, the military service, right? I mean, young men that had to had to serve um, in the German army. She got rid of this in 2011. Um, she tied us very closely to Russia and China. Um, she got rid of um, nuclear power also in the, I mean, the, 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 the decision to get rid of nuclear power and to end the mandatory military service was all in the year 2011. So this around the time of the Arab Spring, actually, when Fukushima happened and everything. So all of this, all of these dependencies, all of these sort of liberal idealistic illusions have come crashing down within a matter of weeks and months. And it's really interesting. And now what Todd said with, the, with, with this bipolar world, one thing, Todd, that I find kind of interesting is that Russia has no problem in the sense when you say bipolar, we both know where the two poles are, right? It's the American and mm -hmm. it's the Chinese pole. And, we, and, I, mm -hmm. and, and Russia, the way I see it, has no problem being part of this Chinese economic uh, order yeah they're part of they, they, first of all they're a, they're part of the BRICS nations I think that's one of the things too why people in the West should not be surprised that India is is on the side of of or 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 let's say it friendly that they're neutral at the moment because they are also a BRICS nation right Brazil Russia India China South Africa mm -hmm. so they're tied into that corset but also um Russia is a Belt and Road Initiative member state. They, they are part sure. of this project. And so um, Ru Russia, I think, is happy to sell its oil and gas to China. And, and that's, that's the grander vision that we should focus on in this whole deal. This, is in, this in a sense, is a way to empower um, China on the massive Eurasian landmass. And I think that's a very concerning factor that... Yeah. Um, that a country like Germany completely overlooked and completely just tied into a naive notion of globalism that, oh, we're all in this together and we buy our gas here and we buy our oil there and um, we'll, get a, we'll get rid of our nuclear power. But in, in the, I think one of the, the, the disturbing facts is that, in a sense, it is in our hand to change it. I mean, an industrious nation yeah. like Germany could become a nuclear powered nation again well it's not because of idealism and i think that is one of the destructive factors please enlighten me how things are uh, let, right now let me Dakota. ask you something about let me ask you something about that i long even before the election was stolen even before uh the biden disaster uh it was very obvious there was an attempt and i never knew really what was behind it or who was behind it to destroy Western civilization. You don't have two mass migrations into Europe and into the US at the same time, which are funded, which are highly organized, which are, I mean, this was all planned. So there obviously was people in our government, even down to the local precinct level, who had been compromised and who were preventing the, un, the election fraud from being discovered and, and held accountable too. So do you see that in Germany? I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, um, you know, there are no conspiracies, but there are no coincidences. I mean, you know, so what, what do you, do you see a, in Germany or in Western Europe, more of a grand plan to destroy the foundations of civilization? I mean, that's what's happening here, obviously. Probably. And is, and is, and is Merkel part of that or was she part of that? But, I mean, that's an and, interesting one. So I, I tend to, um, typically, 
think more along the model. So for the uninitiated uh, amongst our viewers, there's a really interesting uh, thinker on the fringes uh, that goes by the pen name, name Mencius Moldbach or Curtis Jarvin. And I think his model is more, uh, he calls it the cathedral, where you don't need the grand conspiracy. You just need to capture certain aspects of society. You need to capture mainly the universities, and from there, everything else trickles down. And he says, look, mm -hmm. ultimately, the universities are running uh, the countries. I mean, the expertoc expertocracy, for all the evident blunders over the last decades, I mean, you know, if we start with the brain trust of FDR, if we start with McNamara's whiz kids, if we start with the smart people um, uh, in the U.S. military administration that, that gave us the recent uh, blundered retreat from Afghanistan, I mean, there, there's mm -hmm. a certain question mark. But uh, as Moldberg says, there is the universities, once you capture them, they uh, inoculate people with the opposite of rationality. And once mm -hmm. this brain bug escapes, you don't need the grand conspiracy. And I mm. think probably Europe might still be, in spite of the EU, to decentralize, to pull that off. I think the United States, where you've got so much more power concentrated mm. in the greater DC area, that's a whole lot mm. easier. And certainly what we've seen in the United States, there are uh, indicators that would suggest that something, not only just that decentralized Moldbach or Curtis Jarvin like capture is going on, but something beyond that. Germany is an interesting bit because having grown up, it, it was really this almost Protestant guilt reflex. And then somebody like Merkel fell on fertile soil who had this weird world worldview of fundamentally anti-Western, fundamentally anti-German, but that is not to say that there isn't something there. I mean, that woman had been deeply embedded in the East German communist youth mm -hmm. movement, so I wouldn't entirely discount it. And I mean, the less we say how out of nowhere a figure like Macron came from, the mm -hmm. better. So on the one hand, for greater Europe, no, you don't really need to. But there are certainly actors like Macron and Merkel that make you wonder. And I think this is where the debate is. But Fabian, probably before I yeah, monopolize I, this the theorizing. Is a, this is a really, really interesting question that you pose, Todd. And I think about this often. Because mm -hmm. on the one hand, I find the sort of robust traditions of, of, of people that live by them and that have for centuries very strong and very rooted and very mm -hmm. um, independent of um, what in America has evolved into this massive sick uh, media culture where people mm -hmm. just are so f constantly fed with this you know, just demonic nonsense. I mean, where the Kardashians mm -hmm. are the biggest cultural <laughs> um, 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 representatives. So, I mean, I, look. So, so from that standpoint, I, I, I think there's there's a there's a strong sense of of I don't know how to put it. I mean, it's 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 not conservative in the sense that you would think of like proactive conservatism, mm -hmm. but people just can have have lived by some certain values that have guided mm -hmm. them for centuries. And I find and I see a lot of strength in that. When it comes mm -hmm. to the official representation of a country like Germany, whether it's the media, whether it's government officials, whether it's the universities, everything what Christian mentioned. I mean, th th there's there's nothing to be gained there. These people are these people are well. Um, uh, they, they are very deeply rooted in the sort of Frankfurt Frankfurt school of of, of thought. There, they they believe in in liberal ideal idealism of of a world that um, just doesn't exist. But on on the but that that's sort of the interesting framework of Europe, especially the EU as well. Because if you look at the EU, I think one of the great stabilities of the EU actually comes from the fact that you have countries like Poland and the Czech Republic and Hungary, and and even in in some senses Austria that just have are not going to pull along with this Brussels idealism. 
Um, so um, I I don't know. I I think there is there is a sense of 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 great strength still in the culture um, that is detached from anything that the massive media and and the, those institutions are telling people how to live. Um, but um, you notice sort of a cultural change, obviously, when you come to the bigger cities. Um, when it comes to Merkel, one interesting thing we have to remember, Christian mentioned this, her, um, her roots in, in, in the East. Um, and I, I don't believe in a massive conspiracy at all when it comes to, I, I, I see her as a power player. I, I, she, she had always believed in hard-nosed power and killing, politically killing everything around her. But her upbringing is what's interesting because you have to remember her father was a Protestant pastor who mm. embraced socialism and he voluntarily mm. moved to Eastern Germany. Um, Merkel was mm. born in Hamburg, where, where I live. And um, she, her, she, at a young age, moved with her parents to Eastern Germany. And her father was a pastor and he was a, an opponent of the East German regime. Now, one mm. in interesting thing to remember, though, is opponent in what sense? The Eastern German regime was more of a Stalinist type government. And Stalinism was more, um, could be regarded as the, as the right wing movement of communism, if you want to put it to that way. Yeah. Right? Military, uh, nationalism, um, mm -hmm. all, actually all those hard nosed facts that, that, guided a, a strong Soviet Union under Stalin, let's face it. Um, whereas Merkel's father was a Leninist. And so the Leninist was more of the left wing. And this hmm. was, that, that's why he was a regime critic. And that's why people said, oh, Merkel's father was a regime critic without actually looking into more of the details. And that's one interesting fact about her biography and that she came out of sort of the, the, the perestroika glasnost movement that, Gorbachev initiated in the late 80s. So mm -hmm. you obviously see a socialist Protestant um, socialization in her life that probably guided her decision-making, I don't know, subconsciously. One thing that was noticeable, she hated anything that had to do with conservative Christian Catholic men. I mean, she got rid of all of them. I mean, there, there's something really interesting, particularly for an Anglo-Saxon audience to unpack what Fabian said. And I want to drill down a bit where he said there are deeply embedded structures in particularly in Germany as a country um, that, that are hard to convey to, to an American audience. So you guys for a long time in Anglo-Saxon countries had this obsession with university and where it was almost, well, you know, if you do right in life, you go to, to a good four-year college and you graduate and that sorts you. In Germany, this is a relatively new phenomenon. So, for instance, the, essentially you're separated into three different branches of school in Germany. So there's sort of the vocational branch where ordinarily you leave school after ninth grade and you, you learn a trade, be that, you know, a, a carpenter, be that um, an electrician. And there's sort of that middle tier where you learn uh, very sophisticated um, so, um, trades or white collar trades. So you can learn to be a banker. You can learn to be an insurance merchant. And, and I mean, those people make the same amount of money than somebody who'd gone to university more often than not more. So say if you leave school after 10th grade, you do this three year apprenticeship where you attend a trade school on the sidelines. You already have three years of job experience by the time you're mm -hmm. 19. By the paid time job have, experience too. Yeah, paid job experience. So not only do you not have debt, you get paid and you've got mm -hmm. experience. So by the time the other kids and university takes a long time in Germany, come from university at the age of 26, if they're lucky, well, you already blow them out of the water with almost 10 years of job, job experience. And that inoculates people with a big BS radar. And certainly you also have this middle class. And I mean, this is whatever, whoever tries to dominate countries always hates this independent middle class. So interesting, if you're, say, a electrician or a bricklayer, if you belong to the best of your trade, having gotten, and that's, it's, a, it's a medieval term, your fellow 
uh, tradesman, uh, your, your official fellow tradesman certificate after three years. Then, and if you've worked for another three to six years, you can apply to become a master if you're the best of your trade. Again, comes from medieval times, from the medieval guilds. And if you uh, then have passed your master certificate, which is both the last secrets of your trade, be that a wallpaper, be that a car mechanic, be that whatever it may be, then, and you get also a mini MBA with that. You lead your own co company. And those are very independent people. And they make the same amount of money, if not more than university graduates. Right. And sort of when I graduated from high school in Germany in 1999, probably 25% of all kids, if not less, went to grammar school, the type of school where you still learn Latin, hence the name grammar, that allows you to go to university. Nowadays, it's 50%. But still having this strong, proud um, non-university tier makes it harder to indoctrinate the other um, people. And they are very independent. Again, we, we have you know, what, what is known as the Mittelstand, the mid-tier kind of family-run companies. And you'd be surprised how many companies are still family-run. In Germany, Volkswagen be, being a more prominent example, but also other obscure companies that produce segments. Say there's one company in the southwest of Germany that produces a segment that all pumps in the world need. And nobody knows about that company, but they're de facto monopolist in it. And, mm -hmm. and it's owned in the sixth or seventh generation in one family. And that would be Germany for you. And that's why having these big conspiracies, that the big sort of vocalization is very hard to do in a mass scale in Germany. It's happening because I think now 50% of kids go to university. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, that's not to say it hasn't happened or it isn't happening to the elites. And this is where Brussels comes in. And when people have these conversations, and you have them always, like when that Russian airliner was shot down, uh, that, that, that Dutch um, KLM jet was shot yeah. down, and now with Ukraine, they're like, why do we not have a European army? I'm like, well, whom would such an army owe allegiance to? And I'm having worked in the belly of the beast, the EU, myself, for two and a half years. It's almost a different species of people. It's sort of these professional EU families mm -hmm that have sort of intermarried for, and the father is German and the mother is Spanish and they grew up in the Netherlands and Brussels. And these kids then say, well, mm. I'll feel as a European. I identify right. as European. And they find it difficult to cheer for one team during a World Cup or Euro Cup. Um, but this is kind of the artificial entity that we are building. And it's a lobbyist's wet dream. I've got a friend of mine who moved into lobbyism and he says, the, the interesting thing is, at a national level, or say, at a local level, local politics is very personal. You know the people. You know who the actors are. At a national level, you kind of get an idea who the lobbyist organizations are. Move, but move that to Brussels. And an American audience reflect how far DC geographically and culturally is from the rest of the United States. How difficult it is to exert your influence. Now, imagine... DC being moved to Rio de Janeiro and having a bunch of uh, people who got nothing in common for you. They don't quite know as what they um, identify as it's this polyglot post-nationalist elite. And, um, and this is why Brussels is so popular. And if, if I was inclined towards conspiracies, if, if that would be the best way to, to, to rule, disconnected from local politics, having a different set of people raised and thinking there's something else, there's something um, better. And, and, and this is where we're coming from and probably talking about what may or may not be happening. At least the ambition of the Russian gold-backed ruble is an interesting one because the Germans were kicked into the euro, kicking, were dragged into the euro, kicking and screaming. There was never a referendum held for the Germans as the only nation. We were the only nation who got kicked into the uh, uh, Euro, who got dragged into the European Union, even without ever having a referendum about it. Not that it made a difference because they voted uh, so many times in the other countries until they got the result that they wanted. Um, but this is an interesting bit because currency politics are very reflective of a country. And Germany, by its instincts, coming from the hyperinflation is more a hard currency kind of country, whereas the rest of Europe isn't. 
And I wonder what will happen if, should that Russian experiment succeed and their currency um, doesn't tank. So I think I've thrown up a couple of ideas. Um, I'd love to uh, learn your well, thoughts. From I, one thing that I would say that has, I've kind of, a thesis I have is that, um, and I'm not supporting Putin bombing cities or invading other countries, but I think that 10 years ago when he, uh, after the Bush, you know, Brofest or whatever they had, bromance, uh, I think that he saw, he has a very good intelligence apparatus. Maybe they didn't have a powerful military, but their intelligence apparatus was very good. I think he saw the globalist criminal machine that was being built in the West. And that's when he started arming and rebuilding the military. And I also think that's when he started thinking about moving off the currency uh, and starting to build Russia's gold reserves and to you know not have any debt and to uh, build up the rainy day funds and to look at some kind of gold-backed currency. That's just my thought. With the military, though, I, a question that I have is with regard to building it, um, where is that stuff <laughs> that apparently they bought? Because it seems like a lot of the, the, the tanks and the machinery that's being destroyed mm -hmm. dates back to Soviet times. I mean, are they, well, they didn't are, build are they a lot hiding? of it. Well, he bragged a lot of it that was, uh, you're right. I mean, he bragged a lot of it had been modernized. I don't know if they're using all their modernized forces. I don't know if there's so much corruption. Well, looks okay. like we've briefly lost, be... lost Todd. Um, but... Well, but let me just pick up on that yeah. for a second, and, and maybe we can continue this point. Um, the, the important thing to remember here um, is that um, Russia has historically been quite weak when it's been in a um, in an attacking position. Um, you know, uh, let's let's uh, remember the uh, war that nobody thinks about the 1921 Soviet Polish war where um, the Soviets were um, the aggressors and actually lost and could not um, subdue Poland. Um, I think, I mean, back in the 19th century, they lost the Crimean War. They lost the Russo-Japanese War. They lost essentially in Afghanistan between 1979 and 1989. That just took a little longer. But Russia has been quite weak whenever it's been the aggressor, where if it is in a defensive position, then it is very expansive. Um, Russia under Alex Tsar Alexander I versus Napoleon, uh, the Russian army became the strongest army of Europe. And the same was the fact in 1945, the Red Army became the strongest army. I think there's something deeply embedded in the Russian uh soul that whenever they are on the defensive, they become very strong. When they are on an attacking side, the morale of fighting is very low. And I think we're seeing this um, in the Ukraine right now. I mean, uh, obviously, I always caution um, that whatever we're seeing from Ukraine might be propaganda from both sides. But the mere fact that the war has been going on for as long as it has indicates something to us. And I mean, I think Todd hinted at that already because it, it functioned as it is, as this sort of oligarchist, often kleptocracy. Um, you, you never know how much stuff uh, exists on paper that Putin rightfully then sees and he sees the newest stuff, but we don't know what, what kind of stuff Russian is holding back uh, quite deliberately. So, so there might be an element about that. And, and again, I mean, um, in all fairness, the German army, if we send it into battle right now, I mean, without battle and the fatigue that comes with it, I think only half of our tanks and half of our aircraft are operational at the moment. And that is with the money that Germany has. Um, probably shout out to the US, US army what it has done supremely well in every single war, better than everybody else was maintenance and repair. So um, as a military geek, particularly one of the unsung heroes are the damage control crews on all the American Navy vessels that just did impossible things. That And, and again, I mean, if you see just like the uptime that the likes of Sherman tanks had during the war, but I'm, I'm, I'm digressing. Um, probably one really interesting thing, and you pointed that out, um, Todd, 
Putin has been some has seen something brewing, and not just Putin. And then, so if we look at the rest of the world, the clown card that the rest. So the West used to be that shining beacon, that shining city on the hill. And over the last 10 years, if not before, it has become this clown card where we are sort of bullied by a mentally handicapped uh, teenage girl that looks like she's 12. And suddenly even um, part of the U UK government says, oh, I've just spoken to Greta Thunberg as if she was speaking from authority. And, 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 and so we've been... Um, and, and then we suddenly got into pronouns. We've uh, been bullied by a teenage girl. At the same time, being very enthusiastic, overthrowing um, governments elsewhere and leaving absolute carnage. I mean, Libya, the most probably sophisticated country in North Africa, um, has opened chattel slave markets. Syria, um, you know, less we, we speak about that, the better. I mean, and even um, the United, you know, Barack Obama, to his credit, he inherited an enviable conflict. But what he took from that, oh, let's invade Libya and let's uh, stir up trouble in Syria. I mean, that that's not being good. And I mean, apart from Germany, um, many European countries enthusiastically helped overthrowing um, Gaddafi. So if the rest of the world looks at that, and probably a good commentator, even though he tends to be a bit on the left side, but his heart in the right place, the guy called Scott Horton. Um, he's been writing about, I think his book is like, um, there we, what is it called? There we go again, or something to that degree that shows all our failed interventions. So we've, we've got a crazy West that um, uh, tries to be the shining beacon on the hill, has disastrous interventions, a disastrous retreat from Afghanistan, disastrous energy policies, and yeah, um, it's this clown part. And well, the, the, the problem is we've lost We've lost all our moral authority, and if I if I yeah. get kicked off again, I, I have a bad internet, it seems. But uh, our moral authority is gone, so we've squandered it. And yeah. this is the great battle we have in the U.S. right now, uh, and this is why they had to get rid of Trump because that part of the American we knew and loved is was coming back. And so we're in a critical battle right now to restore that populist government to the United States and our way of life, literally. It's a, it's a battle of civilizations. I know that's a cliche that's overused, but that's what is happening right now in the U.S. So if we can get rid of this Biden regime, I think we will have uh, an attempt at responsible governance, financially, educationally, trade-wise, uh, national security-wise. If we don't, then you know we are in a serious problem. So this is why I think this election in November is so key to not just the U.S., but to the world and to Eastern or Western Europe as well. Probably to start with, I'm going to play the ball into mm. Fabian's court. So obviously, mm -hmm. Donald Trump, much maligned, much ridiculed in Europe, particularly when he lectured us about it's Germany getting our 2% GDP military funding, which we got in a blink of an eye, and energy policy, What um, you know, I mean, the... Trump was right. You hear, hear people mumbling it under their breath. Yeah, um, absolutely. But so, Fabian, is that something that you observe? And is that something that the political right in Germany and in Europe has been able to capitalize over the last couple of months or will be? What's your observation? No, okay. In a, on a private note, um, I just talked with a, a friend who's quite liberal and he completely acknowledged it. He asked me um, if I think if Trump was in office right now, would this war take place? I said, absolutely not. And he said, I agree. If, if Trump was president, um, this war would not take place. So privately, there is quite the acknowledgement that I've noticed. Publicly, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, and um, which is interesting, though, if you do read the comment sections of, re of readers, on some of the liberal um, um, papers like um, Die Zeit or Der Spiegel or whatever, you will read people that said if Trump was president, this war would not take place. Um, the right has not captured this issue. The conservative middle has not either. Mm, I mean, the AfD's, the AfD's position is basically very pro-Russian, 
I mean, they, they want Germany to act like a large Switzerland, be neutral. The Christian Democrats, the union, um, they're basically, look, they're in, a, they're in a tough position. They are the party that was governed by Merkel. They're Merkel's former party, or, well, it's, yeah, let's put it that way. I mean, Merkel was a Christian Democrat chancellor. All of these disastrous decisions were done in her name through this party. This party nodded maybe um, uh, uh, maybe they didn't like what she did, but they obviously empowered her to do what she did. So they're now in a position to say, well, we caused this mess. We can't go full bore now saying the Bundeswehr is in such a terrible state. Well, it's their own fault. So they're sort of beating around the bush. Now they're cheering. It was interesting when Olaf Scholz... Um, stated in, in the Bundestag, in the German parliament, that Germany was going to be spending above 2% of its GDP for national defense and have that, um, that, that uh, $100 billion of defense spending to you know, um, actually shape up the Bundeswehr. The loudest cheers came from the Christian democratic section. Um, so, but th th this, is a, this is a difficult position. Um, I think what what we're seeing is that realpolitik realism is returning, but nobody is really boasting about it. Nobody's really saying, I told you so. They're all more or less um, quietly and embarrassed to admit that they were wrong. And I continue to think when you mentioned Trump of Trump's lecturing of um, Jens Stoltenberg from NATO, the NATO um um, what, what, what's the official position? He's the head of NATO, right? Um, uh, and, and he lectured him saying, why are we supporting Germany while they're buying Russian gas? We're protecting Germany, but they're buying Russian gas and we're supposed to protect them from Russia. So quietly but surely people are realizing that he was just right. Whatever Trump said in that case, he was right. And we are now um, reaping what we sowed. Probably to, to round this off, why the European right, or particularly the German right, finds it hard to capitalize on the situation. I mean, we've been hinted, hinting at that over the last couple of podcasts. So first of all, how is political talent being recruited in Germany? Unlike the United States, it all goes through the parties, but there is not that one person that pitches itself from outside the party. Somebody like Trump would not exist in Germany. Somebody who comes right. from the outside and biographies such as Trump's biography or your biography taught, they don't exist in Germany. So for all its strength is that I said, mm -hmm. you've got somebody who starts a trade at the age of 16, or if, even if he goes to university, if he studies economics, he will be working, boom, just in economics. If he starts banking, this is what he's gonna do at, until the end of his life. And somebody like Trump, who's independently wealthy and then goes into politics, that is unheard of. He would need to found his own mm -hmm. party and that's, almost impossible. So the parties groom from a very early age, very inept people and apparatchiks mm -hmm. into physical power. One example that I won't get tired about mentioning is our current foreign minister who um, speaks hair-raising English, who doesn't have a degree in anything, who's never had a day of normal job experience, who plagiarized, who cheated on her CV, but she's our foreign minister. But, you know, she rose through the ranks in that weird pipeline. And then and unlike American audiences of yesteryears that did care like okay were you a success before you became a politician that was never a thing in german politics i mean we had a eu commissioner who whose only claim to fame is he failed and as an apprentice he failed as a, a university graduate he failed in everything he did but then he became a mayor and he rose to the highest office in that europe christian just quickly yeah. as an, an analogy i would almost for an american audience related to sort of like the baseball system it's like I mean, it starts so mm -hmm. early at yet such a young age. People going, kids going into politics. I mean, there's something called the Schüler Union from the 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 the, the, um, the Christian Conservative Party that at, when you're already in school, you can enter and you you they start recruiting talent, and then they have these 
um, and then you you know you have the youth wing of the parties, and then they grow and become and 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 then enter the major parties. And this is sort of like the baseball team where you have like the minor leagues, the farm leagues, the you know, and then they they move up and and once once they're really good, they can enter the majors. It's it's somewhat comparable to that. It's 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 almost from an organizational standpoint relatable to sports. Yeah, and and so so it's very hard for charismatic outsiders of independent wealth. To come in and then um, obviously one thing we can talk about is the absolute absence of proper conservative ideology they don't even know what it is most conservatives in germany don't know edmund burke who kind of explained hell you know i mean uh, conservatives not like i'm to preserve the status quo there is actually some line that that we can draw draw somewhere um, also the afd hasn't done itself a favor fabian sort of hinted at it so on the one hand, you've got part of the party who wants Germany to become a big Switzerland, laudable. And then you've got the other part who were overt Putin fanboys. And it's like, well, he's actually the savior of Christendom and he will come and save us. There was a, quite a bit of messianic rhetoric. And I think a top party um, um, officials still refuse to totally rescind what they said about Putin. So certainly the German political right hasn't done themselves a favor. Part of the European right are stuck in no man's land. France is always a interesting um, case in and of itself where they always have these robust intellectuals that seem to serve no one. <laughs> so let's see how, is that, how that's going to play out with um, Eric Zemmour. Um, but yeah, so this is a, another aspect. Our political parties makes it very difficult for somebody like you taught to even exist <laughs> with like mm. various careers or somebody like Trump to come in. And that's why for all the collision um, with the reality, um, I don't know what it will take, but I'll leave the audience with some hint. I mean, the one thing that did radicalize Germans was obviously the hyperinflation of the 1920s. Let's hope we don't quite go down that route, but I can see, I mean, certainly the whole gas thing, I mean, I said it at the beginning, this is still one of Europe's most industrialized countries. And it's not like, oh, you know, just ration, just turn down the thermostat. That might work for a private home that doesn't work for a factory like, like Volkswagen and, um, you know, or like a chemical plant like, um, like BASF or Bayer producing your aspirin. That mm -hmm. doesn't work for them, that whole rush, uh, rationing. So, I mean, there, there are a lot of interesting um developments afoot and i hope we've given an american audience a couple of good pointers like how things are and why they're so incredibly complicated when it comes to germany and um, we shall see it never a dull moment these days probably final thoughts from either of you i don't really have anything to add you you Fabian? no i think christian you summed it up pretty well well thank you so much and we're looking forward to resuming uh, this very, very shortly. Soon. Thanks, guys. Thank Bye. you.